in a market that's so held up by quantitative easing fiscal stimulus, when you start to see these reverse repos and the Fed starts talking about, you know, the potential for tapering next year, that certainly gives the market some jitters. Hello there from Bedford, the Bitcoin capital of the Eastern Hemisphere. Now, what a wild few weeks we've had, right? We had the Bitcoin car at the Indy 500, the insanity of the Miami conference, and then we had a country. We have El Salvador making Bitcoin legal tender. Honestly, for me, it's just great to be back home for a few weeks now, and just popping down to Tesco's for some tea bags is a welcome return to reality. Anyway, how are you all doing? Are you all okay? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got the amazing Lynn Alden back on the podcast to get her thoughts on everything which has happened in El Salvador. But before we get into that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. And first up today, we're going to have Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my desktop and mobile wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, as you know, because I go on about this all the bloody time, UX is super important to me. So when the Exodus team reached out to me and they were like, Pete, we want to sponsor the podcast, I ended up having to play with the app and see what it was like. And you know what? They've crushed the experience, so I'm happy to recommend it to my friends and family. Now, Exodus Desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address, and you will know that Exodus automatically checks addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself. Head over to Exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. And next up, we have Casa, the safest way that you can store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks, they're all ways that you can lose or have your Bitcoin stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you can take custody of your Bitcoin, but you can only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets. And you get to distribute these wallets into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to ask me more about this, you can reach out to me on email. I am a customer. It's been about a year now, and I'm happy to share my experience with you. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And next up, we have sportsbet.io. Now, as the Euros are on, I have teamed up with Sportsbet.io to join legends Brett Lee and Danielson to make predictions during the tournament. And now we're into the group stages. I even have a ticket for the England-Germany game, which I'm massively excited about, and I will be announcing my new picks soon. Now, if you want a chance to win a prize, then you can go over and compare my picks against the other two and see who is right. If you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions and click on the Clubhouse Legends Picks link. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions and click on the Clubhouse Legends Picks link. Okay, on to the show today and I have the fabulous Lynn Alden back who I had the pleasure of finally meeting in Miami. And since I last spoke with Lynn on the podcast, the obviously massive story has been El Salvador. And I've spoken to Jack Mallers about his experience that was out last Wednesday. I also released my interview with President Bukele. So we have covered all the Bitcoin angles. 
But one thing I was really keen to hear from Lynn on was how this impacts the country's macro outlook and what it really means to be a dollarized country. So we get deep into that. And one thing I've seen pop up a lot recently, and a few listeners have reached out and mentioned, is the Fed's reverse repo program and what that means. So we tag that on at the end of the show. You know what Lynn's like. She smashed it as normal. I hope you enjoy it. But if you do have any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And now I will pass you over to Lynn. Hi, Lynn. Good to see you again. Hey, good to see you. Welcome back to uh, your country. Well, welcome back to you. We actually got to finally hang out in person. Did you enjoy Miami? Yeah, it was a lot of fun there. Definitely. It's, you know, the whole kind of like that size of the event is not really my speed, but it was a lot of fun. Well, it is mine. I'm a bit of an extrovert, so I like it. Uh, I thought it was pretty wild, though. So many people. Did you you have uh, a lot of people stopping you saying hello? Oh yeah, I definitely ran into that, especially on on day two when I gave my talk. I think that that you know that kind of accelerated a little bit. So I definitely had a lot of people coming up. It's happy to see them. Yeah, and you did your talk with uh, Liz, Liz Starks. How did that go? Oh, that went well. Yeah, she. I, I really like the work that she's doing over there, and that you know that the other the rest of the ecosystem is doing on the space. Uh, and so you know, I, I I wasn't super planning on traveling around this time. Uh, but when she when she you know wanted to do that talk, I definitely you know was happy to do it with her. Well, it's an important talk, especially as since you know you and I saw each other, we have the small announcement of a country making Bitcoin legal tender. Uh, so I actually went back out to El Salvador after Miami, so uh, there's a lot happening there. But I guess there's there's a lot we can talk about there. I've got I mean, as ever, I've got loads of questions for you, lots of things I want to ask you, especially to do with reverse repos because that's a something that people have been asking me about to, to ask you. But I really think it would be a good place to start is with El Salvador. Uh, so just to kick things off, what was your read of the announcement? You know, what, what was your initial kind of reaction? Uh, I mean, that was actually pretty surprising news. Like, you know, there was buzz around the conference that, uh, you know, a pretty big announcement was coming. And I was like, you know, I figured it'd be some sort of kind of, um, you know, new rollout from the company or something. Uh, so, so I was pretty surprised by the actual news. I mean, it does make a lot of sense because if they're getting, you know, remittances uh, and they're paying a big chunk of that, those fees to, you know, places like Western Union and Strike and, you know, other Bitcoin applications can make that more effective. Uh, you know, by by making Bitcoin legal tender, they can eliminate the whole problem of, you know, capital gains taxes uh, and they can start to implement that into their banking system more. And so it does make sense. Uh, I was also... You know the the follow up about you know potentially El Salvador exploring mining you know using its its geothermal energy I thought that was actually equally as interesting uh, so especially with the the kind of the hash rate migration that seems to be underway now. Well, yeah, but could they not have just changed the laws to exclude Bitcoin from capital gains tax? That would have been a much simpler way to cover the remittance problem. Or do you think there was a do you think they had to make it legal tender for this? No, I think you're right. There, there could have been halfway measures, right? So there, there could have been, uh, you know, uh, basically excluding from capital gains taxes, but still not having merchants accept it. The problem there is that, you know, whenever the, you know, when people receive remittances, then they have to exchange it for cash. They can't really use it too much, uh, except for, you know, maybe specific areas that happen, you know, like Bitcoin Beach, for example. Uh, but, you know, this gives them more avenues. So they can either convert it into dollars or they can they can spend it on on you know merchants right away, and I think overall that gives more access points. Where you know I think ultimately a lot of people will convert those to dollars, but instead of having to go through kind of centralized areas, they can give it to a merchant, and then the merchant can you know uh, do the conversion on on their behalf. And so there's there's basically gives people kind of maximum flexibility about it. 
Uh, the whole part about merchants having to accept it is, is one of the more controversial parts. Uh, but at the same time, the country said that they would uh, basically provide training and provide, you know, uh, ways that more merchants can accept it. And then if ultimately they can't, right? If they don't have a smartphone or something, uh, then they're 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 excluded from that. Right. So I'm going to do what I normally do with you, Lynn. I'm going to assume you know everything and uh, <laughs> ask you some of the things that like questions I've got on my mind. And uh, if I push if I push you into areas that you don't know, but I you pretty much answer everything I've ever asked you. So it, to begin with, I wanted to ask you about the reality of being a dollarized nation. Not what is the reality of a country not having its own sovereign currency, like the pros and the cons, because. Yeah, the basics that I have been told is that it's great because they get to have a stable currency, which is you know quite rare in that region of the world. You know, we know every well, everyone knows what happened in Venezuela, but we also know Argentina itself and other countries have had quite high inflation rates, so they get the benefit of a stable currency. But not having their own currency, that there, there must be a number of drawbacks as well. Um, yeah, in some ways, it's it's kind of like relying on a gold standard, but but uh, messier. And so basically, they're they're relying on a currency that they cannot print, right? So they they're they're reliant on getting those from from the United States. And so, as you point out, there are some advantages, right? So you don't get devalued quite as quickly, right? You still get devalued, but not as rapidly as most emerging market currencies do. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if there is a liquidity crisis, right? So their their central bank cannot create new ones. Uh, any any you know. If they denominate some of their debts in dollars, right? So they, if there is a, basically a dollar shortage, uh, you know, they can't service those debts. Also, because the country's so reliant, you know, part of how it gets dollars, you know, if you're a country that either has dollar-based debts or is a dollarized nation, you rely on on exports or remittances in order to get dollars, right? And so some countries could be, say, oil nations, and they they export oil. Other ones could have other commodities or other types of goods. Uh, and and for this one in particular, they're heavily reliant on remittances, uh, and so when it, it basically gives them a lot of exposure to, uh, you know, things like a pandemic, obviously, but then also just any sort of recessionary downturn that could leave a bunch of uh, El Salvadorians in uh, the United States unable to or unable to send remittances or having to reduce the amount of remittances they send because they lost their job or they're otherwise more economically stressed. And so it's 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 basically a mixed bag. And I haven't done, you know, I, I it's I certainly don't know everything and I have not done a super deep dive on say El Salvador's uh economic workings. All right. So when you said there that they're protected from devaluation of their currency more than other countries, are you saying that as the dollar devalues that accelerates the devaluation of other currencies? Uh, not necessarily. The dollar can devalue in a vacuum. It just happens to be that most emerging markets, because they have faster population growth, they have uh, faster money supply growth, more bank lending, that uh, they're they're more prone to their currencies going down at a faster rate than the dollar. Uh, so if you look at a long-term trend of a basket of emerging market currencies, it gradually loses value against the dollar. Uh, and against the euro or the Swiss franc and these other kind of uh, larger currencies, but it's not in a straight line, right? So it goes in cycles. But in general, for example, if you look at, say, the Indian rupee, and that's not exactly a country that's had, say, major currency crises in recent years. It just kind of is this this, this generally more devaluation currency. Uh, that basically, there's the the exchange rate kind of weakens over the long run, and you know that's ex- that can be accelerated for countries that have a lot of dollar-denominated debts, right? So say you're in a, uh, a relatively poor country and uh, you know uh, 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 sources of capital outside of your country want to invest in your country, 
uh, they're unlikely to give you loans in your own local currency. Uh, and, and so instead, they'll often do dollar-based loans or to a lesser extent, euro-based loans, You know, maybe depending on where they're, they're from. But for example, China will do dollar-based loans to countries in Africa, for example. And so it's not necessarily that they're using their own, own currency, but they're using generally one of the top you know, two currencies. And they'll, they'll make a loan to these countries, and it could be to their sovereign government, or in, say, Argentina's case, or it could be towards you know, their corporations, as in Turkey's case. Uh, and so that country now has uh, debts in a currency that they cannot print. And so if that currency rises substantially while their local currency devalues, they can run into major issues. It's kind of like if, you're, if your revenues are denominated in dollars, but your, your debts are all priced in gold, you'd have a big problem if, if gold were to appreciate against the dollar, if the dollar were to devalue against gold, right? And so they kind of, you know, some of those emerging markets face the same sort of problem where they have a natural tendency to devalue. Now, there's, there are some exceptions, ones that kind of, so, there are some emerging markets that went through serious problems in the past. Like, for example, during the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s, Thailand was kind of at the epicenter of that. So they had a, a big devaluation of their currency. Uh, they didn't have very high exchange reserves. Uh, but they, you know, over the next 25 years, they, they really learned from that lesson. And so Thailand built up really big foreign exchange reserves. Uh, and so they, they've actually had one of the most stable currencies uh, in the past decade, for example, uh, and they haven't really had that persistent devaluation against something like the dollar, uh, whereas you see basically India going through or some of these other countries going through, and every country has their own dynamics. Okay, so what is the reality of the impact on the country in terms of you know, raising money? Because we've discussed a lot in the past about using bonds for raising money, and you know I've come to understand like the strength of the currency impacts the rates at which you can borrow, and also because of uh, you get different uh, the ratings agency rate the 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 currency. But if if you're a dollarized country, if you don't have a sovereign currency, you can't you don't have the ability to raise money in the bond market. Or is that not well, true? you. If you're a country that's not a sovereign, you know, you don't have your own currency, you can still raise money in the bond market. I mean, an example is all those, the the Eurozone countries, right? So Greece does not have its own currency, but it raises money in euros. And so the euros are the shared currency of of multiple countries. And so all all these other types of countries, if they don't have their own currency, they can still raise capital. I mean, El Salvador does have bonds outstanding. Um, I assume they're dollar-based. I haven't haven't, um, actually dived into... um, you know their their capital markets, but they do have bonds outstanding, uh, and that that's common in in emerging markets. Well, they'll have bonds denominated in dollars or or euros, or sometimes in their own currency as well. It depends on on how developed that market is. So I guess how those bonds then would be graded would have to consider two things: one, the stability of the currency. So if they're if they're uh, issuing bonds which are dollar based, then obviously that's a, a relatively stable currency. But at the same time, there will be a separate uh, consideration for how good uh, El Salvador is at paying its bonds back. Exactly. They would look at things like how much debt they have relative to GDP. Mm. They would look at how much debt they say they're, they're dollar based. They would look at how much debt there is relative to dollar inflows. So it's kind of like a, a debt to income ratio sort of sort of type of metric. They would look at past default history. I mean, if a country you know has a serial defaulter, obviously they're going to be they're going to have less benefit of a doubt there. Uh, there's also you know economic instability or political instability if you don't know who's going to be in charge 
in a, in next year, right? And and there's no kind of um say uh, uh, strong institutions of of kind of reliable governance. Uh, countries would have uh, lower ratings, and you see that, for example, in in say Russia, for example, where you know they've actually have pretty strong finances. When you go down, you know they have their own currency. Uh, they're but they're say they have very high reserves. They have very low debts. Uh, and but their credit ratings are not super high. I mean, they're not bad, but they're not super high because Russia did default back in the in the nineties. Um, it was you know by then it was you know less than a decade old in its current you know political formation, and they've come a long way since then. And they you know they they're the rating agencies have recognized that. But even though their financial metrics are are actually quite sound, their their ratings are a little bit lower than you'd expect from. From just looking at the numbers, because they're kind of getting a Russian discount, right? You're getting some mm. some political risk, corruption risk, sanction risk, uh, economic concentration risk, and just the fact that it's still classified as emerging market, and so it still has, uh, you know, that more recent history of of currency turbulence or or default. So in the bond markets, those, you know, I've talked to a lot of to you in the past about. Um, you know, hedging your investments. I'm a moron. I only have Bitcoin. You're smart, and you hedge your investments across multiple different asset classes. W- within the bond market, do people tend to hedge across multiple countries? Then, I mean, it depends. Yeah, if, if you're, I mean, if you're in a developed market, right? So, so say you're an American bond investor or a British bond investor. Uh, a lot of times, they're just concentrated in their own country, right? So. Uh, same thing with say stock pickers, right? They, if you're a, if you're running a mid cap equity fund, you're you, in America. You might just be picking American, uh, you know, mid cap equities. Same thing for bond managers. Uh, generally, if you are an emerging market bond manager, usually you have you have multiple country exposure at that point, uh, especially because you know emerging markets can go through major cycles, and so there could be periods where one country is just not a great, you know, lending environment at the current time. Uh, and and so by having multiple countries, you can kind of go to whatever needs lending or has the best risk-adjusted returns based on your assessment. And so you, you know, the broader they can be, it's kind of a trade-off. I mean, the more specialized they are in a few markets, the more they they can maybe get that market right. On the other hand, they want a handful of markets that they can kind of rotate capital to based on what's going on. And in terms of the U.S., I'm I'm going to assume there's a benefit to other countries being dollarized. Both not not just uh, in terms of uh, supporting the currency, but also at a for political reasons. Well, I mean, there are ben- basically countries that are dollarized are either generally very small, or economically tied to the United States, or they went through major they lost their currency before, and so they they tend to, you know they the, those those types would be on the more impoverished end of the emerging market spectrum, right? So they would actually not even be classified mm. as full emerging markets; they'd be more like frontier markets or you know other classifications, uh, and so the the big challenge there is just that they're all of their circulating currency therefore is reliant on an external country, the United States, that could choose to sanction them and block dollars going to them. Uh, that that basically could tighten, you know, and change monetary policy. Right, they're they're relying on an external centralized, you know, source of monetary policy. Uh, you know, uh, it's not like they have, you know, say you say you back. Your dollar, your currency by gold. You might have some gold mines in your country. You can literally mint money. Whereas if you're uh, if you're El Salvador and you're and you're relying on dollars, you, there's nothing you can do to kind of mint dollars locally. You have to either sell exports to get dollars, or you have to um, get remittances. And, and again, you could be sanctioned. So now you're basically 
you're you're basically subordinate to this other country. You're you, you've given up some degree of your sovereignty because this other country can just literally shut you off from your money source at any time. And so there there are a lot of drawbacks, but it's often it's kind of um you know it's kind of a fallback option if 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 countries start to lose their currency, it gets weaker. You start to generally see black markets develop for for dollars or euros. So it's, it's for them it mm. becomes a harder currency. And then if it fails completely, you can have it a period or in some cases a, a more permanent stretch of just the country just literally kind of gives up and just reverts to using the dollar, for, you know, for the foreseeable future. So would Argentina's dollar market be considered a black market? Uh they, I mean, they certainly do have the basically the, the exchange rates there on the black market are different than the official exchange rates. Uh, I, I've, I, you know, I, I haven't been there in maybe seven years, so I, I don't, I don't cover that super closely. But for mm-hmm. example, in Egypt, uh, you know, people certainly generally often appreciate sometimes having dollars, right? It, it kind of, you know, they, they don't mind getting getting you know dollars, you know, because the the exchange rate can differ from the official exchange rate. That was especially true about five years ago. Egypt um, broke their peg, so around that time, there's a big gap between like the, the the black market exchange rate, which is essentially the real exchange rate, and the official exchange rate. And so you, you see that kind of popping up in different markets where you know what the government says their currency's worth is not necessarily what people are what what supply and demand are dictating. Yeah, I've experienced it in two countries. So I've, I, when I went to Venezuela, I experienced going to a restaurant, everything was pl- priced in the Bolivar, but they wanted paying in dollars if you could, and they would recalculate the price, recalculate the price for you. But I also had it in Cambodia. I, I mean, I expected it in Venezuela. I went there expecting it. But when I was in Cambodia, I wasn't actually prepared for that. But they actually, people wanted the dollar. And they had this strange thing whereby... Um, they would inspect the note, and if there was any blemish or tear on the note, it would be rejected. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure why. Yeah, I, I've got no idea why, but it was a it was a really interesting experience and a chance to be trying to explain to my children the you know, the benefit we have of a stable currency in our country and and why people might want dollars in in different countries. Okay, so have we ever experienced, or has there ever been an incident of a dollarized country being shut off, being sanctioned? Not my knowledge. Um, but there are, I mean, it's, it's a, a yeah, that's it's a threat, and it's something I don't know. I mean, there are countries that get cut off all the time, right? So I mean, Iran's been a, a constant source of sanctions. Uh, they're not they're not dollarized in the official sense. Um, so there are there are a long history of countries that get cut off from the rest of the world, you know, due to sanctions, North Korea, Iran. But then you have like softer versions of that, right? So you have, for example, you know, Germany's was was working with Russia to build a pipeline between them. Uh, and so both sides wanted that, and the United States was threatening sanctions over that, right? And so mm. that that's an example where you know you don't have to be as crazy as as North Korea to be on on the risk of of getting U.S. sanctions, right? You you can you can just be doing things that for whatever reason the United States is not thrilled with what you're doing, and that that stick of sanctions is always there. And so basically, it's one of those things I don't know. There's there's mm. there's a lot of small countries that use them, and so I wouldn't say no, um, but but I'm not sure. That's another question I've got. This, this probably is slightly unfair, but do you, do you know much about the process of a country becoming dollarized? Because, I, you know, one of the things that was crossing my mind when I was there, I was thinking about, it's like, well, how do you go through the process? Because suddenly you need an injection of enough capital into the country. You need to ensure everyone has dollars. I don't know if that's anything you've ever looked at, but it's certainly something I'd be interested in. And and it also makes me think about, you know, do 
you know, they don't have the ability to print the currency. Do they have to keep track of how many dollars are in the country? Do they have to keep certain reserves? You know, how does the banking infrastructure work? What happens if there's too much, uh, too many dollars leave the country? You know, how, how do they ensure they have enough of a circulating supply? Are those things you've ever looked at? I'm actually curious to those those questions myself. It's not something I've deeply looked at. Uh, it, it would probably be very hard to, for them to track how much currency they have because a good chunk of it would be physical in their case. Mm. So in, in, say, the United States, most dollars are are in, in the banking system. They're easier to track. Only, only a minority are physical. The same would be true for euro or, or British pounds in their countries. Uh, whereas if you're talking about an emerging market, a big chunk of the dollars there would be physical. And so that'd be harder to track. Yeah, that's a really good set of questions, and I'm not sure how they go about it. And I've actually thought of that myself. It's just not an area that I've done a lot of research on. There are emerging market economists that that you know could probably answer those questions. I mean, if actually, um, you know, the the Bitcoin critic Steve Hankey, uh, oh, he, he'd actually, I bet he, I bet he could answer those particular questions uh, very well. I, I might approach him. I just can't tell him that it's for a, a Bitcoin show because. Uh... He's not. He's not a big fan, and uh, he's also he, he's a bit of a bullshitter as well. I've been tracking some of his tweets. He, he was talking about the remittance market. One of the interesting things is he was criticizing Bitcoin as remittance to El Salvador because you have to sell it back on the exchange. But he completely missed the point that actually you don't. You know, they are. You have got the situation. Yes, it's small in El Zonte, but in El Zonte, you don't actually have to sell your Bitcoin to get dollars. Almost in every location. Uh, you can spend your Bitcoin. So that comparison whereby it's actually more expensive than remittance because you need to sell to the exchange is actually false. And it's one of the things I'd like to talk to him about. Um, are you thinking of visiting at all? El Salvador? Yeah. Uh, not in the near term, but it, it might be neat to try it out eventually. So good, Lynn, honestly. Uh, I've been four times now. I really want to get back there. You've, you've got everything there. You've got, you know, it's relatively cheap. You've got great food, it's sunny all the time, you've got the beach, and now now obviously a Bitcoin project to track. Okay, so a few other things I'm thinking about with regards to El Salvador. So when you heard they were essentially becoming a, they're already a dollarized nation, they're essentially a Bitcoinized nation now. Um, one of the things that was on my mind, thinking about why they may do this and why they may have forced people to accept Bitcoin. And one of the things I was thinking about is that They've created these, uh, this policy whereby if you spend three Bitcoin, you get permanent residency. And in the, were you in the spaces where they joined, the Twitter spaces? Uh, not that one, but I saw, oh. I saw the, the general kind of uh, notes afterward of, of what was said. So what was interesting, they said you just have to invest three Bitcoin. Um, and it's not a, a fee you pay to the government, it's just investments. You can buy a house, a car, and a property. And, he said, and they said, it doesn't matter what happens to the price, it'll be three Bitcoin. And so one of the things I was thinking about is what the, it appears they're trying to do is uh, inje- have an injection of Bitcoin into the country and that will be circulated or held by people. But if Bitcoin continues to perform as it does over the next you know, five, 10 years, that Bitcoin held in the country will increase in value relative to the dollar, which will raise up the net wealth of the country. So that was my interpretation of why they're doing this. I'm, I'm assuming you, you have your own interpretation. That'd be my interpretation as well, and that goes back to your previous question of if a country is going to dollarize, how do they how do they get dollars? How do they ensure they have enough dollars? How do they track dollars? Uh, and so, you know, if you're kind of seeing a, a country Bitcoin ice, uh, you know, one of their initial things they have some Bitcoin from Bitcoin Beach, 
uh, they can get remittances, but they probably don't have a ton of Bitcoin there. You know more than me, you know how much Bitcoin they might have, but they whatever number they have, they they almost certainly want more, especially if they want more merchants to be able to accept it. They want to have it, you know, grow in market share a little bit and be more commonplace. And so it's natural that they'd want to get more Bitcoin there if possible. It's also basically a way to, uh, you know, have another. Basically, they've diversified their monetary base a little bit if they if they can kind of get Bitcoin up to a meaningful share against the dollar. And you know, even going back to your your other question about uh, has there ever been a country that that's dollarized and cut off from sanctions? One thing that comes close, and actually this you know this is relevant for El Salvador, is the IMF. And so basically, a lot of these emerging markets that take out dollar-based loans and debts, when they run into problems, because inevitably, if they end up having a lot of dollar-based debts, there's usually some sort of cycle of a dollar strengthening cycle or a recession where they end up having trouble servicing those debts and they need dollars. And one of the major uh, purposes of the IMF is they have essentially this big basket of dollars, and they can go around making these these additional dollar-based loans for more, instead of pure investment purposes, they're more strategic purposes. And they can say, hey, I see you have a problem there. Uh, we can go ahead and give you dollars or, or loan you dollars. Uh, you'll, of course, pay them back. But in addition, we will dictate parts of your fiscal monetary policy as we see it. And so we're basically, uh, you know, that that that's an example of a country ceding additional control over some of its own sovereign choices because it's relying on dollars and therefore because it's relying on, say, the IMF for a bailout. And so that's actually kind of an intermediate case where they may not be sanctioned from the dollar, but there is an external organization that, that has a lot of control over them, basically dictating parts of what they can or cannot do. How, how does the IMF operate? How, is, how does it raise its own money that it can issue for bailouts? How is it governed? I don't know too much about it. I mean, that was established decades ago. Kind of, it's, it's kind of part and parcel with the petrodollar system uh, right. and the Bretton Woods system. Really, this whole kind of this whole modern era of, of dollar dominance, and so that's basically just there's multiple countries that are involved uh, to to ensure that it's funded, uh, led by the United States. Uh, and so you have these institutions like the World Bank or the IMF that that are basically they're almost like error correcting mechanisms for the system, right? So the system on its own is not super well designed it's not super sustainable it's not very self-correcting right and so a lot of these countries they get dollar-based debt the dollar strengthens uh, and then they default on their debt and then there's a big economic crisis and so these institutions come in and they say okay you know we can give you that loan but you have to change this and it kind of it kind of softens the volatility a little bit but it also in the long run makes these countries kind of more reliant on these external organizations yeah, that's what it appears to me, because the only time I ever tend to hear about the IMF is when it's bailing out other countries. But it always appears to be basket case countries. And I just keep wondering, it's like, do they ever get this money back? Does it even matter? I mean, yeah, there's, they, they do a large number of small projects. And a, a lot of those individual projects do get paid back. Uh, there are others that, that do outright default uh, a number of times, like, say, Argentina, for example, uh, and so it's kind of like the cost of doing business, right? So it's, right. it's basically, it's almost like that's a way for the United States and some of these other countries to extend their reach. And this is a cost that they, that they basically absorb uh, if needed. Uh, but, you know, the IMF also does things like it publishes research uh, and, and does things like that. But yeah, the main kind of purpose we always see in the headlines is the IMF doing bailouts or dictating policy to various countries. 
because we're seeing that hostility towards this Bitcoin decision from the IMF and, and the World Bank. And it does make me think of, I'm not sure if you listened to my interview with Alex Gladstein about the petrodollar with him and Nick Carter, but he raised this idea that potentially the, the second Gulf War was uh, to do with Saddam Hussein started selling his oil for the for euros over the dollars. You know, and he said there's never been a real explanation for why that war happened. But if you if you actually look at the money, if you follow the money, it was not long after Saddam Hussein did this. You know, was this, you know, he asked the question, was this a war to protect the petrodollar? Um, conspiracy theorists would probably say yes. I mean, I, I don't know either way. But I guess El Salvador adopting Bitcoin is a threat to the IMF and is a threat to the World Bank, especially as other countries are signaling their interest. Yeah, we've had this you know, wave of countries signaling Paraguay, Panama, uh, Ecuador, Brazil, Mexico, Tonga, Honduras, the potential bills being submitted in um, uh, both Panama and uh, I think it's Honduras and Paraguay in the short term. The guy from Tonga is is speaking quite regularly on Twitter spaces, on Twitter about this. He actually mentioned that 45% of the country's uh, GDP is remittance uh, by wow. introducing... Yeah, wow. Like, it was that was a massive wow because he talked about... I think he said if, if they move remittance to Bitcoin, that would add an additional 40 million to... I can't remember if it was 40 million to the GDP or actually 40 million in terms of like tax receipts for the government. I think it was the ladder. And I'm interviewing this week and I'll ask. But as we see like a whole load of countries signal for Bitcoin, I guess this is a threat to the dollar. I mean, in a sense, yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, from the IMS perspective, it's hard to read exactly what they're thinking. I mean, I'm sure that there's some economists there that, that haven't studied Bitcoin or, or they're skeptical on it. And they're, you know, said they could be naturally worried that if, if Bitcoin's volatile or loses value, that it could be bad for El Salvador. On the other hand, I do think there are other ones that are maybe have the opposite concern that that mm. Bitcoin could do well, and that therefore, you know, there it basically impacts the kind of the global monetary order that's been in place for a while. And this, you know, I, I actually I, I mentioned before I had my I had my own kind of petrodollar article back in December of last year. And I, I did talk about that, uh, the uh, kind of the Iraq connection. And it is hard to assert, you know, this happened, therefore this happened. But basically, you know, the the the, the reasons given for the war ended up not being true. Uh, it, it was it is also true that uh, they basically did switch to, uh, you know, uh, euros, uh, you know, shortly before then. And the the highest stage where this was kind of uh, this idea was put forth was by Ron Paul in Congress back then. He basically gave the speech in Congress uh, that I linked to in my article where he kind of talked about this connection. Uh, and so there, basically there's not been a great track record of, so there's all sorts of dictators in the world and they tend to get left alone. But if the dictators kind of mess around with the money system, that's when they, you know, they, they tend to track the, some, some of the ire of these, of these external sources. Let's, I guess, put it there. Next up, I talk to Lynn more about El Salvador, but before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And this week, we are kicking off with BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. And BlockFi offer a number of products for Bitcoiners. So with a BlockFi interest account, you can earn yield on your Bitcoin. I have been a customer of this for two years now, and I do love my Bitcoin working for me. Also, with BlockFi, you can take out a Bitcoin-backed loan. You can borrow against your Bitcoin without selling, and I know I've been talking about it for a long time, but they are imminently launching their rewards credit card where you will get 1.5% percent 
rewards back on all card purchases paid in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to find out more, please do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, we have Ledger. They are the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And you know what? I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Now, Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software that interfaces with your device. And if you're an Android phone user, you can also connect that to your Nano S and manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, we have Gemini, who I'm exclusively using for buying and selling Bitcoin. But you know, you know, I'm not selling any Bitcoin. Why would you sell Bitcoin right now? We're in a bull market. Don't care what the naysayers say. Anyway, I'm not selling any for like 10 years or whatever. I'm only using the buying. And I've been using the Gemini app for buying dips, but I also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And you know what? I'm yet to see a better interface for buying Bitcoin. Now with their streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing. And that is all through one clear, attractive interface. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M. INI.com. And lastly, this week, but nobody's ever least on my podcast, it is my new sponsor, Revolut. Now, listen, regular listeners know that I had my bank accounts closed down by Lloyd's TSB. I'd been a customer of theirs for 25 years and they shut me down. They don't like Bitcoin. But you know what? Upstep Revolut, they reached out to me and they said, Look, create an account with us. Let's get this going. And you know what? It couldn't have been easier to set up my account. Now, they like Bitcoin. They want to make it as easy as possible for Bitcoiners so you can transfer to exchanges. And for new customers, new customers of Revolut, they are offering $20 or £20 if you complete three card transactions. It only takes a few minutes to set up and you can create your card and add it to Apple Pay immediately and get that cash in your pocket. But you know what I would do, right? I would convert that straight to Bitcoin. Now, this is a new relationship, and I'm working with the Revolut team to help them build a bank, which is Bitcoin friendly. There is a lot to navigate, but we are working hard at this. If you want to find out more, please head over to revolut.com forward slash WBD. That is R-E-V-O-L-U-T dot com forward slash WBD. What other things have you been thinking about with regards to El Salvador adopting Bitcoin? You know, the because it's it's a risky thing. I, I interviewed the president and I had a meeting with him beforehand. And, you know, I said to him, what can the Bitcoin community do? And he, he's, he was very clear. He said, look, this has to work. I've got a very high approval rating, but if this is a failure, you know, I'm done. You know, my, my rating could drop. Um, there's obviously many benefits should Bitcoin continue to be successful, wider adoption. You know, they could, they could become the micro strategy of companies. But what are the other risks or trade-offs that you've been thinking about with regards to this? Well, I think the you know, one of the big risks is just the volatility. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the one of the criticisms of Bitcoin and, and why it's you know maybe not the ideal legal tender is that it's it's highly volatile. And so, you know, as as problematic as a dollar might be, it's generally more convenient to have say prices listed in dollars because they're not going to change week to week in most cases. Uh, now, we, for example, lately we've been in a more inflationary cycle, so we see prices going up. But in general, you know, these these kind of more managed currencies have these kind of, you know, periods of stability. Uh, and whereas something like Bitcoin, because there's no safety nets, there's no, you know, there's no um, triggers that can shut it off if it goes down a certain amount. It can be highly volatile, as we're seeing today. Uh, and so, for example, 
I think one of the risks there is that, you know, you could just have people maybe not want to accept it on a wide scale, right? And it just kind of, they're basically given the option and they don't pick it for one reason or another. Uh, I think also we saw, for example, some of the risks where uh, that could open the door to other altcoins coming in. Like we saw some, now it's kind of a, a bed for kind of scammers, right? To go in there and say, Ooh. hey, I, I see you like Bitcoin. So here's here's like, you know. My shit coin. Exactly. And so I think that's a big risk. Uh, and then, you know, two is just that it just kind of, for whatever reason, just doesn't work. Maybe they don't attract enough capital. Maybe they don't really, you know, they put a lot of work in. And it just kind of, you know, doesn't change a ton. But overall, I'm I'm pretty optimistic on it. I think, you know, I think that their that their reasons for doing it are understandable in the sense that they are getting a lot of remittances, and this is, you know, a more efficient way to do it potentially. Uh, and then two, if they end up attracting some capital based on you know that they're they're you know if people can invest through Bitcoin and get and get residency and maybe build a business there or just kind of you know come in improve the real estate improve you know more local businesses it is a way of attracting capital at least a potential way of attracting capital it remains to be seen how much they'll do it I've even seen online a number of people because they want it to succeed there they're willing to give just free donations right so they're not even they're not even trying to get residency. They're just willing to kind of, you know, send some stats over to local businesses. And the cool thing about it is, you know, with with charities, if you're trying to give international aid, it's always been challenging because you don't know how much your money really gets through to the end goal. You're, you don't know how much gets lost in the way. There's tons of corruption. Even if there's not corruption, there's well-meaning people. There's there's friction. Uh, and whereas if, say, a local business just they can they can you know have like a code they can have their their address and basically people can can send sats directly to local businesses or, or local people uh and so it's a basically a different way of doing aid that is potentially more more effective and i'm sure alex gladstein you know, can talk more about that type of subject so overall there are a lot of kind of benefits that they could get from this uh and so but there you know there are risks of relating to the, the volatility the opening for for you know, altcoins, things like that. Yeah, I just did a little Google. The global re- remittance market size was valued at $682 billion in 2018 and projected to reach $930 billion by 2026. So there's a real incentive to move to a remittance market which has low fees, instant transfers, you know, solves a number of problems in the traditional remittance market. You could see how if... If El Salvador, I think it's 15% of their uh, GDP is remittance, if a large percentage of that moved over to, you know, there's two sides of the remittance. There is the just using Bitcoin itself, but there's also the strike side, which is sending synthetic dollars over the Bitcoin network. If by moving to that, you can increase the size of uh, the, the, if you can increase the GDP of the country because you're removing fees, you could see this, you could see the case study being something that just spreads globally. And I'm wondering, you know, as more countries adopt Bitcoin, do they become stronger together? Do they form coalitions? I mean, I saw that the uh, Development Bank of South America, I can't remember the actual name, is supporting El Salvador in its rollout of the project. And that group, that development bank, supports 14 countries, as I believe, and even includes South Korea and Taiwan, which I didn't know about. I don't know if you're aware of any of that, but it just feels like, if they get this right, this could be the first domino for a number of countries. Yeah, I mean, it was. I think one of the more interesting pieces of news after the volcano mining, of course, was yeah, we'll the number. Yeah, like the half a dozen other 
uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, political leaders from other countries that also express similar interests. And they might have, you know, they can't move as quickly as this country can because they don't have a, a president with that much approval and that much kind of control over over legislature and stuff. Uh, so, you know, for better or worse, uh, but, you know, they, they can have a politician there that's kind of raising it in Congress or getting it on the radar. And yeah, I think it comes down to, you know, watching it be, you know, either successful or unsuccessful in El Salvador, and that could influence other nations to move ahead. Um, and I think it's, you know, we have to be careful reading too much into it. So for example, when MicroStrategy bought Bitcoin, uh, that wasn't, you know, so far there's not been, say, a flood of other uh, companies, you know, putting, uh, obviously none of them have really done what, what MicroStrategy did, where they put most of their reserves into it. There's been a handful that put a small percentage of their reserves into Bitcoin. Uh, and so that was, you know, that wasn't that wasn't the start of some floodgate. Now, maybe looking back two years from now, it will be, but but it's not like, you know, a year later, there's, you know, a, a floodgate. And so I think it could be the case that, that El Salvador remains kind of the only one for a little while, or that other countries, you know, maybe, you know, some of these other ones start dabbling to some extent. Uh, but it's, you know, th- there's kind of certain conditions that make them ripe for it. So one is countries that are already dollarized uh, and that are already relying on remittances. Those are the ones that are at, at most uh, probable of trying something like this out. Uh, and so I think at the very least, it makes sense for the, all of them to call, you know, Jack Maulers and, and basically say, how can we how can we cut our remittance fees? Because as you point out, if, if you have hundreds of billions of dollars per year in remittances flowing around, that's tens of billions of dollars of remittance fees, uh, potentially over a hundred billion eventually. Uh, and that could be reduced to near zero. And that's, you know, that's very impactful for people that are sending small amounts for which those percentages make a world of difference. Yeah. Well, yeah, Michael Saylor's in an advantageous position when they made their first move at the start of a bull market. So they're in a very good position in that, I think it was like his original buy of that first billion or so, or whatever it was, was an average price of around, I think it was around $11,000, $11,500. Yeah, he's in the green. It's easy for him to make future decisions. You look at Tesla and Elon Musk, you know, their initial buy is now in the red. I think their average price was 35000 uh, so, I th- I think MicroStrategy is in a u- unique position. I think other companies having a minor amount of exposure, you know, is advisable or, or or is something they can consider. But to make a move like MicroStrategy has done, and especially after the recent drawdown, I think it's a slightly different position. I'm going to come onto that because I've got a MicroStrategy question for you. But there's two other things I want to cover in El Salvador. Okay, so you you did your presentation with um, with Elizabeth. Uh, discussing the Lightning Network, one of the most interesting things about El Salvador is that I, I my expectation is the majority of day-to-day usage will be on the Lightning Network. The, the Lightning Network is in, integral to this, whereas historically, the, you know, the majority of Bitcoin being used, by my experience, has been on the main chain um, and moving you know, relatively larger amounts. Uh, you know, well, not moving five, ten dollars. It's thousand or thousands. Um, I have been using the Lightning Network when I'm in El Salvador. I turned up on the most recent trip without any dollars, and I didn't care. I did end up using the ATM because I've not used one before. But everywhere I go, I know accepts Bitcoin. So I was just paying on the Lightning Network. And the Lightning Network is super important to this. You've been doing some work tracking the Lightning Network, tracking the growth of the network. What, what can you tell me? Yeah, I mean, over the past, uh, it must be seven months now, I've been paying particular attention to the Lightning Network. And so, you know, when I, you know, I, I first wrote about Bitcoin in late 2017, kind of passed on it, then revisited it in early 2020. And so I wrote a series of articles throughout kind of early and mid 
2020 about Bitcoin. Uh, and then really kind of as I, as I got some of that core stuff out of the way, I, I increasingly sh- uh, shifted my research towards uh, Lightning Network because that was an area that, in my view, was not getting enough attention uh, compared to what the potential was. And then moreover, basically there, there are signs, you know, when I started writing it, say, six months ago, seven months ago, pointing out that I think it's kind of a sleeper hit, right? So I think it's something that's not getting a lot of attention, but it's really starting to reach critical mass. We're really starting to get these killer apps for it. And it's one of those things where, you know, building out Lightning is a process. I mean, it started as a white paper in 2015. Then they had to do, you know, a set of kind of uh, standards so that different uh, companies could implement Lightning and have them, you know, be interoperable. Uh, then, it, you know, it, the SegWit update on Bitcoin allowed Lightning kind of to be actually built. Uh, then, you know, from there you have no liquidity, right? Because Lightning is all about liquidity, number of number of channels and nodes. Uh, basically, you know, some, some degree of network effect has to start from virtually nothing. And so you had a couple of years of building that out. You have uh, companies like Lightning Labs that are then, you know, they're, they're building tools uh, so that these other apps can then come and start using the Lightning Network more effectively. And so that's, you know, looking back about, you know, the, the beginning of this year, uh, Lightning kind of started to reach critical mass where it's pretty usable. Someone could send a reasonable amount of, of, of Bitcoin over it uh, and then basically, you know, liquidity was high. And then when you see things like Strike Global, uh, you know, they're actually starting to, to use them for specific purposes like cutting down remittance fees. Uh, that's getting pretty interesting. And so I, I started covering that space. And I, I do think that, you know, one of the whole takeaways from the Bitcoin conference was that Lightning has reached critical mass, right? So it was used for, uh, you know, streaming stats from gaming. It was used in auctions, uh, you know, the, and then now, of course, the the El Salvador news. And so I think it's at the point where, you know, if you look at overall Lightning capacity, it's really accelerated lately. So how much how much Bitcoin, uh, you know, that that you know network can support. And it's one of those things where it might the numbers might not be as large and exciting as say some of the DeFi projects because Lightning is inherently not about gambling. It's not about casino uh, type of of coin trading. It's about building out a payment network. And so it's been that kind of slower, longer grind to really kind of lay the foundation rather than something that you know just kind of you know went up straight in a in a straight line. Yeah. Okay. So we need to talk about volcanoes. I did a show with my friend Harry Suddock the other day, trying to learn a lot more about the energy sector, how energy moves, et cetera, et cetera. And we covered everything. We covered nuclear, solar, we covered um, uh, hydroelectric, we covered coal, we covered everything. The one thing we never covered was geothermal. We just didn't come up on our radar. And about two days after we recorded came the announcement of volcano mining. It's something that just never even crossed my mind. I just didn't even think about it. And it's become this beautiful meme online. People are adding volcanoes into their names on Twitter. But it's actually, it's a really interesting idea. But I, what, the thing that I'm most interested about is this idea of volcano bonds. It was something Jack Mallers raised. Have, have you looked into those? Do you know much about them? Not into those, but basically, I mean, I know the basic idea is essentially that they could, that's another way of them raising capital mm. and you, you can collateralize it by, you you have access to this this revenue now, right? So instead of just kind of lending to, uh, you know, a, the pool of, 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 you know, a Salvador's government, you're lending to something that's that's collateralized by certain revenue streams or certain assets. And there, there obviously would be different ways to structure that, but that's certainly a possibility. And you know, there'd be Bitcoiners out there that'd be happy to you know, buy those even even just for the the lulls. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's you know the idea. So the idea of ge- geothermal is actually really important because you know an example would be Iceland, right? So they they have a large geothermal component to their energy, and so by extension of that, they have very very low 
energy costs. And so one, but there's a, a trouble there. So say, say, you know, generally you want to export things you're really good at, but it's really hard to export electricity, right? You can only mm-hmm. go a few hundred miles. Uh, so what one thing that they do is they, you know, aluminum, for example, is very, uh, it takes a ton of electricity to refine it into its, its final form, right? So it, you get the aluminum out of the ground, but it's like, it's, it, it's kind of mixed up and you have to use a ton of electricity to separate it and get it into its final form. So they have an industry where a lot of people, like a lot of uh, places in the world will ship their ore to Iceland and then they'll use their super cheap electricity to to refine that into finished aluminum and ship it back out. And that's basically a way of essentially exporting their electricity, their surplus cheap electricity uh, without doing it literally. And so you know, basically Bitcoin mining is another potential way where a country can, if it has, for whatever reason, some sort of super abundant electricity. It could be that they're unusually good for hydroelectricity. It could be that they're unusually good for geothermal energy. They have some of these super cheap sources uh, that are that are renewable and long-lasting. Uh, they can say, okay, we're going to go ahead and, and use some of that to, to mine Bitcoin uh, or you know, uh, uh, process aluminum. Uh, and that's that's one of the ways that they can raise revenue. And so uh, that, that actually, you know, in addition to people potentially going into El Salvador with three bitcoins uh you know and and investing them there that that actually you know that volcano mining that geothermal energy uh could be a a pretty pretty meaningful source of revenue uh if they get some serious you know miners on board that that know what they're doing and you know make that work and and I guess the state could mine themselves co-location co-located at, at at the location of the the sites and as i believe it they're not it's not a cheap to set up like we're talking over 100 million, maybe hundreds of millions to set up these uh, geothermal locations. So, well, listen, if they do a volcano mine, I think I would buy it for the lols, just out of interest. I'll probably be on the phone to you, Lynn, how do you do this? But, uh, exactly, I, I think I think a lot of people would. Yeah. Well, listen, I didn't think we would talk about El Salvador that much. Um, I have got other, just two or three other things I do want to cover with you just, uh, just before we finish. Um, but I am, I'm so interested in this El Salvador project and see what happens. So, sure we'll talk about it in the future. But I'll keep it simple. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, MicroStrategy now owns over 100,000 Bitcoin. They've essentially got over uh, half a percent of the total supply. Should we read into that in any way? Are there any potential negatives for them having such a large percentage of the supply? I mean, you mean for MicroStrategy or for Bitcoin as a whole? Both. I mean, I think you know their their risk is that because he's continued a dollar cost average into it, uh, even though his initial purchase was was very low, but like below eleven thousand, uh, you know his his you know current cost basis is is you know I think in the in the mid to upper twenties last I checked, uh, and so he is say susceptible to negative press if if Bitcoin were to fall to say twenty thousand or something, right? So if it mm-hmm. falls below his cost basis, he's susceptible to negative press now because he owns. A lot of the controlling, you know, he owns the dominant share of, of controlling votes, uh, you know, and and he's structured the the debt, uh, you know, uh, smartly, right? So it's not like it's it's all callable the second it's you know it's, it's not really risk of near term liquidation, uh, you know, he can get through that, but certainly that you know some of the positive press the feedback loop he's had as as his decision kind of you know resulted in profitability could kind of revert if, if you were to get bitcoin below falling below that cost basis so that that's kind of the risk on their end uh you know i don't really see a huge risk for bitcoin uh you know to have an entity control 0.5% uh 
uh, you know, we already kind of see this to some extent with the large custodians that they control, you know, more than that, right? So they, you know, they basically control them on a half of other people. Uh, there are kind of risks to the narrative. I often kind of separate actual risks versus narrative risks. And so I've, I've done that before with Bitcoin energy, where I don't, I don't view Bitcoin's energy consumption as a problem, but I view that the, the narrative around that can be a problem. And so similarly, you know, one of the the kind of the the, the often spread around facts, you know, people like to spread, like, uh, you know, say Bitcoin critics will spread around the idea that like, you know, 90% of Bitcoin is owned by like 2% of the addresses or something like that. And they're leaving out the fact that those are generally custodian addresses mm-hmm. that are that are owning Bitcoin on behalf of millions of people. Uh, and so you can kind of use, and I think a lot of them honestly don't even know. So some of them could be purposely misleading, whereas actually there are other investors that I respect that I've seen share that statistic. And I just think they, I just think they don't know that those are custodian addresses. Uh, and so, you know, basically... If you start to have companies uh, become kind of the, these 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 figureheads or these these large owners, it, it kind of can make it look more corporatized. And I think that's in some ways part of what what we saw during this recent altcoin bull run is people said, "No, Bitcoin's too expensive. It's boomer coin. It's 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 corporate coin. So I'm going to go buy dog money." And and so, so it didn't it didn't work out it didn't work out well for most of them other than the ones that maybe bought before the big parabolic rise, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know that that's kind of a a risk and so I think that there are risks related to unit bias right so the fact that you know I mean now with the bear market Bitcoin's unit bias is decreasing right but if you you know people often uh, either don't realize Bitcoin is divisible. Or they know it's divisible, but they think it's just unsatisfying to own 0.1 Bitcoin. And so I think that the 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 kind of community shifting towards Sats makes sense, right? Because it's mm-hmm. it, it creates it's more like kind of like how Doge is is attracted to people because they could own a lot of Doge because each each coin was cheap. Uh, you know, so there is unit bias can be a real thing. But then in addition, yeah, if you have these corporations own big pools of Bitcoin, uh, it it can make the narrative, you know. Uh, a little bit more challenging. And that's kind of an inherent trade-off because, you know, in order for Bitcoin to reach very, very large market capitalizations, you're naturally going to have institutional adoption of it. Uh, But then if you get institutional adoption of it, there are risks related to, you know, capture uh, or or the narrative kind of, you know, losing some of its steam. Uh, And so it's just something that I think the community has to, you know, always push back on and always kind of focus. And I think they've done a good job there, right? So when when they saw the mining council stuff, they were like, wait, so now we're doing behind you know behind closed doors like like agreements on things mm-hmm. and, and they kind of push back on that. And so I think so far the Bitcoin community's, you know, been been pretty careful about, you know, not having heroes. Or at least, you know, when they they get heroes like say briefly Elon Musk, the second they misstep, they're they you know, they're pushed away. And so I think, you know, there's that there's that trade off between these, you know, large pools of capital versus Bitcoin still, you know, be being mainly a retail phenomenon. Yeah. All right. The last thing I want to touch on you is just some general uh, macro outlook. I've missed all of this because I really want to talk about El Salvador with you. But you know, we did have the CPI inflation rate hit uh, around 5%. Um, that was seen as a surprise, not by everyone, but that was seen as a surprise. We have the comments from Jerome Powell. Uh, Jerome Powell, what, what's your general read on inflation right now? I saw in your update that you think for the year it will range between around, I think you said 4.7 and 5.1%. What's your general read? Well, so I think the, I think the, so that was the May uh, inflation reading. Mm. It came out in June, but it was for May. I think that the one for June that'll come out in July will probably be in that, that, you know, 4.7 to 5.1 range, most likely. 
but then after that, it's probably going to go somewhat lower in that year-over-year terms because you're looking at harder base effects, right? So the May is the peak base effect month where you're looking at, you're comparing it to May of 2020, uh, which had a dip in CPI uh, at the right, lowest okay. point. Uh, and so as you get out to July, August, September, October, you know, months like that, even if you still have pretty significant inflation, you'll be comparing it to those same months last year, which is when inflation was already rebounding a little bit. And so I think that the year-over-year numbers could start to relax down to 4.5%, 4%, maybe as low as 3.5%, but I, I, I kind of aim towards that 4% range. And so I think that the in rate of change terms, there's a good chance that you'll get kind of a relaxation of inflation. And so we're already kind of seeing that in the in the media where they're saying, oh, so you know, uh, commodity prices are going down. This was this was transitory all along. And I think the key takeaway is that, you know, some of these prices will come down. They probably won't come down to where they were before this, this increase in the money supply. And then even when they come down, uh, you know, and then eventually level out, they're, they are still at risk of, of uh, price increases in the future. And so I think that, for example, when you look out either later this year or multiple years in the future, uh, I think energy prices going up is another potential catalyst for inflationary pressures. And so this one was largely driven by food, semiconductors, uh, and non-energy commodities. Uh, and I think we're I think there's a good chance that, you know, either later this summer or, you know, next two, three, four years, that that energy shortages are are another contributor to another round of of the, this type of inflation. Okay. Right. We'll keep an eye on that. Last thing, because I don't want to keep you too long. Uh I want to ask you about the reverse repo market, and then I'm going to talk to you about what I think I want to do next month with you and see what you think about that. So, okay, so the reverse repo market hits 755.8 billion. Okay, two people have asked me about this. They're like, can you ask Lynn what the hell the reverse repo market is? I think you might want to explain what the repo market is first before you explain that. Yeah, and so basically the way I've been describing this is it's, the, it's kind of the opposite problem of what happened in 2019 when we had the mm-hmm. repo rate spike. And so the repo market is this overnight lending market between financial institutions. Uh, and the Federal Reserve has these, these uh, operations where they can provide liquidity to that market or absorb liquidity from that market. And so when they do a repo operation, basically uh, a financial institution can, can, that has treasuries uh, can give some of those treasuries to the Fed and exchange, they can get dollars. And so they're basically, it's like a short-term collateralized loan. And they can have different terms. They can, they can be overnight or they can be for, for several days or weeks or you know longer. Uh, and so uh, that's basically, it's kind of this way to temporarily convert between treasuries and, and uh, cash. And that, that makes the market more liquid. And so what we saw, for example, back in, in 2019, in September, uh, you know the, the overnight lending rate, the repo rate, was super calm, and then it just spiked out of nowhere. It went up like seven percent, literally overnight. And it's one of those things where the average person in the street had no idea it happened, but every single person who follows, you know, macro or or and is any way related to Wall Street, every single person like that was like the shock heard around the world, seeing that repo rate just spike up like that, and that marked the end of Federal Reserve quantitative tightening. So for the the, the year prior to that. They were reducing their balance sheet, reducing reserves in the system. Uh, but starting with that spike, the Federal Reserve had to come in and start increasing their balance sheet, and they haven't stopped yet. So for for almost two years later, and that was before the pandemic. That was late 2019, and the reason essentially was that they, you know, you had a, a mismatch between the amount of T bills uh, and reserves, and so they were reducing reserves while the while the U.S. government was running very large deficits. 
something like 5% of GDP deficits prior to the pandemic. And so you had a lot of T-bills, not a lot of reserves. And so essentially what happened was that there was just too many T-bills, not enough reserves. So the Fed had to come in and say, okay, uh, you know, uh, you know, we'll fix that. We'll we'll start providing more reserves, essentially. So they, they first started doing temporary, those repo operations, and then they realized it was more structural. So they actually started permanently buying T-bills. So creating new bank reserves to buy T-bills and kind of resume this period of quantitative easing. Uh, now, they've done so much quantitative easing for the past year and a half that actually now there's excess reserves in the system. So there, there's tons of reserves and they bought so many of the T-bills that there's actually now a mismatch where there were too many reserves compared to the amount of T-bills in the system available for the private sector to buy. And T-bills are really important for, for structural reasons for the financial system because they, you know, they can collateralize them. They can do all sorts of things with them. Uh, and, and so basically you have an issue where if there's too many reserves, not enough T-bills, you could have T-bill rates go slightly negative. Uh, so even though the Federal Reserve is not going into negative rate territory like, like uh, you know, Europe is, uh, they're just holding rates around zero. They saw an issue where their T-bills were kind of trying to go slightly negative just because there were there was essentially not enough supply compared to demand just because the, the Federal Reserve bought so many of them. And so there's a couple ways they can fix that. One is the Treasury can start issuing more T-bills. Uh, they can basically, you know, release short, uh, fewer long duration treasuries and more T-bills. Or the Fed can, say, change some of its buying patterns. Or they could do this reverse repo facility where they can say, you know, hey, uh, you know, we can take some of those excess reserves off your hands and, and give you out some T-bills temporarily. And, and so it's basically the opposite dilemma of 2019. And this was compounded by the fact that the the, the Treasury general account was drawing down. And so when the Treasury issues bonds, they, 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 you know, they sell bonds, they raise cash from selling those bonds, and they have this big pool of cash. And so what do they do with it before they spend it? Well, they, they store it at the Federal Reserve, uh, but it's, it's its own gigantic account. Uh, and so if they issue bonds at a faster rate than they spend money, then that, that TGA, that Treasury General account goes up. And that basically sucks dollars out of the system because that's kind of like dollars sitting in a void not being used anywhere else. And so that, that's kind of a dollar tightening event. On the other hand, if they start spending more money than they're issuing bonds for, they draw down that TGA and basically push money back into the system, back into bank reserves. Uh, and so normally that that is, you know, their Treasury General account is a few hundred billion dollars. Uh, now during 2020, they brought it up to record highs of 1.8 trillion. They basically issued a, a ton of treasuries ahead of time faster than they spent it, just so they had this big war chest uh, and they just kind of weren't spending it for a while. And so starting in early 2021, the Treasury said, okay, now we're, we're past the crazy part. We're going to start drawing down this Treasury general account. And so they, we've been in this kind of, you know, say, uh, four-month period of the Treasury not issuing as, you know, very many Treasuries uh, and spending rapidly so that the TGA is being drawn down. And a lot of, you know, we basically put an extra over a trillion dollars back into bank reserves pretty rapidly. And when you combine the fact there's still quantitative easing happening, banks basically literally have more reserves than they know what to do with. And so a lot of that is spilling back over into the Federal Reserve with these reverse repos. So it's, it's the exact opposite problem of 2019. So you have, you have too many reserves, not enough T-bills. And so we're seeing that reverse repo activity take off. So it doesn't sound a hugely negative thing. I mean, so both both the repo spike and the repo activity and then this reverse repo, they naturally attract like sensationalist headlines. So back in 2019, there were a mm. lot of people saying that the, 
that, that that there's some bank about to collapse or banks are gonna. And I kept saying, no, no, it's literally it's a it's there are. So you had kind of two camps back then. On one hand, you had kind of mainstream journalists say, oh, it's no big deal. It's it's you know it's just a technical matter. On the other hand, you had sensationalist uh, accounts saying like you know a bank's gonna collapse. This is like 2008 all over again. Uh, and you know the reality was that it was basically you know a shift towards deficit monetization, which is a big deal, but it's not the it's not the same big deal that those accounts were pointing to. It was not a bank failure or an upcoming bank failure. And so kind of like there now, you know, we're seeing a lot of concern about reverse reaper activity, and there are some real ramifications of it, but it's not in- indicative of say some some near term collapse or anything like that. Uh, what kind of the more I think concerning things for financial markets is that you know when this when reverse repos first took off back in say you know 2014 that that started kind of signaling the end of quantitative easing and so when the Fed started to see that they basically saw that there was excess liquidity and so they eventually began tapering their asset purchases uh, and so in a market that's so held up by quantitative easing fiscal stimulus when you start to see these reverse repos. And the Fed starts talking about, you know, the potential for tapering next year, their asset purchase rates. Uh, that certainly gives the market some jitters. And so you can have kind of plumbing issues, or you can have kind of liquidity kind of, uh, you know, uh, tighten up a little bit. Uh, but that's different from some sort of, say, financial time bomb about to go off. All right. All right. Awesome. Do you want to hear what I think we should do next week? Absolutely. It might require a bit of homework. Do you know my good friend Nassim Taleb? Uh, yeah, I've. I've I'm familiar with his work, but yeah, I mean, right now, he's, all of his tweets are protected, so I can't, oh, yeah. You have to follow him. Well, um, yeah, so me and him are good friends, and um, <laughs> he's quite hostile to Bitcoin right now, and he's written his black paper, and I'm going to spend some time looking at it. I wonder if you and I should try and dissect it, go through some of his arguments uh, you know, against Bitcoin. I Actually, there's a couple of things I think he makes good points because I've already had a look, but what do you think about doing that, dissecting his black paper? I'd be happy to. Excellent. Okay, well, I will get Ben to uh, send you a link to it in advance and I will give you all my kind of like the key points I think we should look at and I think I think that'll be a bit of fun. Anyway, it was nice to meet you finally. Um, hopefully we'll do it again sometime. we get to hang out again. Um, I think Bitcoin 2022 might be like 50,000 people, even wilder, which will be exciting. Um, I, well, we'll, I, I see, did... we'll see how long the bull market or bear market goes. That could dictate yeah. how many people show up. But yeah, it was, it was a I did love meeting you and a lot of other uh, uh, Bitcoiners in the space. It's always, you know, you interact with people online and it's really nice to then meet them in person. Well, I mean, it was a bit of a all-star barbecue we actually met at when we were at VJ's, which was pretty insane. But yeah, uh, yeah no, it's great, it great to see you. Um, fingers crossed Bitcoin won't be in a big bear market. I'm very excited to watch what's happening in El Salvador. And yeah, let's catch up next month and let's do a dissection of Nassim's black paper. Absolutely. All right, Lynn. Good to see you. Take care. All right, I know what you thought of that. I don't even have to ask. You all love Lynn. I love Lynn. She crushes it every single month. Lynn is incredible. No matter what I throw at her, she always brings the heat. And this month, her insight into what it means to be a dollarized country and how Bitcoin will actually work in El Salvador was super interesting. So I hope you enjoyed this one. If you do want to go and hear more about what's happening in El Salvador, there's a whole bunch of shows. There's the original ones that I did with Michael Peterson. There's one I did with Michael, Jack and Mal Suda. We've got my most recent one with Jack. And we've also got the show I just released with President Bukele. All up on my website, www.whatbitcoindid.com. Also, if you've got any questions, you know you can hit me up. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Please don't send me any weird shit. 
And also, just try and keep it short. Like, when you send me a whole essay, because I reply to everything, I have to, like, literally sit there and read the whole thing. And it's just taking a lot of time. So try and keep it short. I do love you. I will reply. And, yeah, hello at whatbitcoindid.com. All right, if you haven't supported the show before, if you haven't left me a review and you love what I'm doing, please go and leave me a review. Look, even if you don't like it, if you think I'm an idiot, you hate my clothes, you want to give me some shit, whatever. But please go and leave a review. Apple Podcasts, it really helps with the rankings. All right, it's time for the weekend. Time to go and chill. Hope you have a great weekend yourself, and I will see you all next week. 